Oh, behold our God seated on his throne. Nothing left to do for salvation. It's been accomplished on our behalf by Jesus Christ. Let's behold him in his word this morning. I would invite you to find Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. As we continue in this Reformation series, looking at the five solas as we end it here over the next couple of weeks, these anchors of our faith. And as we said last week, I would invite you to participate as a body after I am done reading this text. If you feel so inclined and you are saying, I am ready to hear from God in this moment. I'm not thinking about the events of yesterday or what's happening in an hour or what's going on this afternoon or this next week, but I'm ready to hear from God. After I'm done reading this, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and I would invite you to respond together with speak. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Sailorville Church, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. Speak to us today through it. Use your perfect word through your perfect Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth through your imperfect messenger this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So a few weeks back, students from our high school ministry here and myself got to go on a trip to Uganda, Africa. And what a wonderful opportunity it was to see God working and moving in a mighty way there. I had the opportunity on several occasions to speak uh, to the church that was there and also to the staff uh, that worked there from God's word. And on that first Sunday morning that I was there, uh, many people were coming up to me and saying, you look very smart today. And I was wearing a shirt and tie that day and it it looked nice, it was tucked in as well. And uh, they were looking at me, and everyone just kept saying, you look very smart. And I just thought, wow, they must think something about me, just screams of intelligence when they look at me. And even after I was done speaking, people are coming up and going, very smart today. And I said, wow, okay. And I began to think that maybe they had access to my ACT scores, which they wouldn't be saying that if they did. But then I realized as time went on that they were saying the same thing about my sandals that were sitting on the porch. Very smart sandals. I thought, okay, an inanimate object is smart. It must not exactly mean what I think it means. And what I had come to find out was saying that you look smart is like saying that you look very sharp today, or you look slick, or you're, perhaps you're very swagged out today, right? Saying you look nice in your appearance. It really has nothing to do with your intellect at all. 
And there were various phrases, various words that were the same words that we use here in the United States, but they had very different meanings. We had the same words, but had a different dictionary. And as we look at the Protestant Reformation, which Protestant means to protest against Catholic Church and the Catholic doctrine of the day, it can be confusing now and even then because we use much of the same words, but our same words mean very different things. Words like grace, faith, justification, and so on beyond that. But all these words, we use them the same way. They are applied very differently to our lives. Luther, as we've heard about in the last couple of weeks, as a monk, he taught on grace and faith. But after he read the word of God, this teaching sounded much differently. He actually, actually, he read what God's word said about grace and faith. His teaching began to change and it was much different than what the rest of the church was saying, even though they were saying the same words. See, Luther wanted to reform the church. He never wanted to leave the Catholic church. He wanted them to see what the word of God said. That was the purpose of nailing his 95 theses to that door. That was what you did when you wanted someone to read something, when you had something that you wanted to debate or talk about. He had no idea what kind of, what would spark from those nailing of those 95 theses, but originally he just wanted the church to see exactly and to live how God's word says. And that's our desire as well. In this series, we aren't against people of the Catholic church. We love them. But we want them to discover, as Luther did, exactly what God's word says, particularly about salvation. So the five solas that we began last week, as you'll see on the screen behind me, is a way of reminder. They are Latin words, sola meaning alone, and that's the key word here, is that all these words by themselves are sufficient for us in this life and for salvation. So grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, as we looked at last week, and sola de gloria, which is to the glory of God alone because of all these things. So as we talked about last week, that all these things flow out of God's word alone. And we'll be looking at two of these today, looking at sola gratia, which is grace alone, and sola fide, which is faith alone. They are different from each other, grace and faith, but yet they're also very similar at the same time. So often in our teaching this morning and in the word of God, they tend to overlap. But both of them answer the question. They answer the question of how does a sinner stand before a holy God? The book of Hebrews tells us that it's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. Each and every one of us will stand before a holy God one day. And grace and faith tell us how we are able to stand before that holy God. This question haunted Luther. He knew what kind of person he was and how sinful he was and it kept him up late at night as he pondered this question, how can I in sinfulness stand before a holy God? And this is what he said, I worried so much that I almost martyred myself. I was the best of all monks, but my conscience did not give me any certainty. 
His conscience would not give him certainty. As he read the scriptures, though, he saw that righteousness came through faith alone. The stuff that we need to stand before a holy God comes by trusting in Jesus. And he discovered that by reading the book of Romans chapter 1. And he was set free that the righteous shall live by faith. But his life wasn't perfect. He still had bouts of doubt and many nights fighting against the devil as he worked through uh, his own sinfulness. And on top of that, he had terrible bowels. He was very flatulent and he was very open about this. In fact, this is one quote that he uh, wrote down, wanted us to know. I am a different mind 10 times in the course of a day, but I resist the devil and often I do it with breaking wind that I chase him away. When he tempts me with silly things and sins, I say, devil, yesterday I broke wind too. Have you written it down on your list? He's a man, just like many of us, over 500 years ago, still the same struggles that many of us have today, flatulence, and also wondering, how can I stand before a holy God? A funny quote, but a serious question that we're looking at this morning. We want to see what the scripture teaches about these truths that set the people free. James Montgomery Boyce, commenting on this passage that I read, says that this passage tells us how God saves through grace alone, the channel by which his grace is received through faith alone, and how God has not saved through works. So Paul says, for by grace you have been saved. Well, why is it that we need to be saved in the first place? Well, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 tells us humans are dilemma. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through, through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans that Adam willfully chose to sin. In all of us, Adam is our representative. We then were credited or given his sin. It's like when you're on a basketball team and someone gets a personal foul, the whole team gets penalized. So each and every one of us is born a sinner and we have this sin from conception and from birth. And then we all know that we've also committed our own sins. And God in his response to sin has every right to exercise his perfect justice on us and to completely annihilate us. Even though he had every right to do so, he doesn't do that. But instead, he pursues humanity with grace. God is so unlike us, isn't he? That's his first response is grace. We all scream and we want grace when we have done something wrong, right? I was at the fair just a couple of days back and my kids kept walking in front of other people. And there's always that one dude that gives you the stink eye when it happens, right? I was like, dude, they're little kids. There's thousands of people here. Show me some grace. But then the same thing would happen to me. And outside, I'd be like, oh, sure, no problem. But inside, I'm thinking, dude, what kind of parent are you? Wow, do you teach your kids anything? Man, at least have them say they're sorry. Wow. We're so often, we want justice when we've been wronged, but we want grace when we've done something wrong. And God has been wronged, and he gives us grace. Unmerited favor. That's what grace is. Unmerited favor, being given what we do not deserve. 
That's why Paul says this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. As you think about that gift from God, I was given a gift card just this last week. And when I was given this gift card, I was told, here you go, I want to give this to you. But don't worry, you can pay me back in increments. That's not a gift card, is it? That's not what the person did, actually. But that's not a gift card. The moment that you have to pay it back, it becomes a loan card. Grace is free. But as Tim Keller points out, grace is free, but it always costs the giver. So therefore, grace is always free to the one who receives it, but it always costs the giver must pay a price in order to give grace. And so the moment that someone has to pay who is receiving the grace, it ceases to be grace anymore. And that was Luther's whole problem. The other reformers about the indulgences, he was so angry because the church was saying, here is grace, but you have to pay for it. And once you pay for it, you'll be given grace, time off of purgatory. And this is still going on today. In fact, we're told that if you follow the Pope live on World Youth Day, that's the same as being there, and you get time off of purgatory. You know, I had a, a friend of ours who you know very well, uh, Dave Heisterkamp, one of our Engaged Network pastors, explained to me how grace works, he himself being a converted Catholic in the Catholic Church. So he explained it like this. He says, once you get baptized, you're regenerated, the original sin is removed, and the punishment of hell is gone. But then that gives you access to now this giant tank in heaven that Peter controls. And as you perform acts of merit in the church, you are given more and more grace. So you take uh, the Eucharist, communion. Oh, man, these guys, look at that. The Eucharist, communion, that, that is dispensed down a little more grace to you. As you uh, do other things, through marriage, you get married, you get a little more grace that's given to you. Uh, as you participate in confirmation, a little more grace is given to you. Uh, as you um, go through penance and confession, a little more grace is dispensed down to you. Right, And this is how it's viewed as this is how someone receives grace. And the goal is to, by the end of your lifetime, to get up high within yourself here with the grace of God so that you spend less time in purgatory. Now, if you commit a moral sin, it's drained and you start over again. You go confess and you begin this whole process again of being dispensed more and more grace. Now he was talking about too that it doesn't really matter what your heart condition is like as you're participating in these. It is that you are just the act of participating in them gives you more and more grace. But when Jesus hung on that cross, what did he say? It is finished. Everything that you need for grace, everything has already been given. And this isn't just a Catholic teaching. This is the basic worldview of most people. This is how they view it. If I get to heaven and my good outweighs my bad, hopefully I've done enough things that I have more good things going on for me through the things that I've done, right? I've been a good dad. I waited for the right person to come along to marry. I've been a good citizen. I was 
mostly honest on my taxes most of the time. you know, I've done this and that. I was a softball coach, and I really didn't want to do it, but I did it for my kids, you know. And so we think that we can fill this up, and at the end of time, that hopefully we'll have enough to be able to stand before a holy God. But that's not grace, is it? Because grace is never free. The giver must pay the full price. And God has paid the full price by giving us his perfect son to us as a gift. We contribute nothing to salvation except for our sin. And this is why the gospel, why we know it's true. Because it makes so little of us. Right? Every other world system is people that are trying to ascend to God, to be good enough to get to him, but not biblical Christianity. God descends to us, and there's nothing that we can do to earn or contribute to our salvation. Our own pastor is is famous for saying in his testimony that as a Catholic, he didn't have to believe more to be saved. He had to believe less. So we've been offered salvation by grace, but it must be received through faith alone. Faith alone answers the question is, how do I receive this gift of salvation? Now the Catholic Church did and does affirm grace alone, but they do not affirm faith alone. In fact, at the Council of Trent, one of their infallible uh, councils, they came out with this statement along with many others. If anyone says faith alone is the basis for salvation, let them be an anathema. Let them be cursed forever in hell, is what that says. So the explanation is that the church believed in salvation by grace alone, but grace was not received through faith alone. You believe in faith and you're motivated by grace to do these works, but you work in cooperation with God. Your faith and works is ultimately what gets you to heaven. The works are meritorious. They bring you merit or credit before God. Now, the key difference in the Reformation and in today is the Protestant and the Catholic understanding of how we define justification. The Catholic definition of justification is to be made righteous. To be made righteous. The Protestant definition is to be declared righteous. Okay, it doesn't seem like all that much of a difference when you look at that, but the difference between being made righteous and being declared righteous is huge and it makes all the difference. So if you believe that you are made righteous, being right with God is a process. Over time, as you do good, you actually become more and more righteous. So if you believe this, at baptism, you are infused with the righteousness of God, which means that now you have the ability to make yourself right with God through doing good works as you receive more and more grace over time. So it's up to you to keep doing more and more until you reach that point where you're right with God. But God's standard is complete perfection. Right? So if you believe that justification means that you are made righteous, you'll never get to a point where you ever reach perfection. 
at least not in this life. So if you hold to this view, you believe in a purgatory, that you must go to a place after you die where you are purged of your impurities. Because nobody can stand before a holy God with impurities, so you go to purgatory, which isn't hell, but is not heaven, and it's a place where you are purged of these things that you were not, didn't do well enough in this life. So let's take a look at what the Reformers taught and what the Bible teaches, that justification means to be declared righteous. Salvation is not us working with God it is through faith alone in Jesus. It's kind of like if you're playing basketball and you win and they ask you what was it that won the game for you. Nobody ever gives credit to the ball, right? Man, that Spalding has such good grip. That's why we won. <laughs> Nobody ever says that. Nobody ever says it's the ball. People blame people for the ball, patriots and things like that, but nobody ever gives credit to the ball. <laughs> right? Because the ball isn't doing the work. It's participating in it. It's involved in it, but the players are the one that are putting it through the hoop. And so this is, the, so it's like that we believe and we have faith in Christ, which is also a gift, and we are given righteousness that comes from God. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 9, and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, so it's not about doing enough good, but which comes through faith, believing in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So when you stand before a holy God, that's what justification is. It's a judicial term. You're supposed to picture yourself standing before a judge. Okay, that's what justification is. The verdict is rendered to you. You don't actually become innocent or become guilty, but you're declared to be so. But when you stand and you're declared righteous, it's not your own righteousness that's being declared. It's that you've received through faith the righteousness of Christ, which is perfect. It's perfection. That's why Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So what happened was Adam's sin was credited to you. It was imputed to you. But when you have faith in Christ, God's, Christ's righteousness is then credited to you. It's given to you. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So what happened on the cross is that Jesus takes everything wrong, filthy, sinful about you and claims it as his own. He exchanged, he takes your clothes and takes them as his and then what does he do? He gives you everything great, good, wonderful. And his perfect obedience is now given to you in exchange. So your sins are not only forgiven, but now you have perfect obedience that is credited to your account. So it looks like even though you are a sinner, that, you've always, that you have never sinned, and that you've always obeyed God perfectly. This was the heart of the Reformation, this imputation that Christ's perfection is now given to you. You aren't made righteous over time. You're instantaneously righteous and declared to be that way. Now, how can this be true? 
Luther says that it's not our own righteousness, it's an alien righteousness that's now credited to us, and he uses a phrase that's Latin that says, simul ustis et peccator, okay? And you kind of see it in the definition there. It means simultaneously righteous and simultaneously a sinner. So how does this work? You are a sinner, Okay, in this life, you still are 100% a sinner, but yet at the same time, simultaneously, if you know Christ, you are righteous. That's from God's view, that he doesn't see your sin, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. So with all my lust, all my imperfections, all my greed, all my pride, everything that I've done in my life that I'm doing even today and beyond here in God's credit in his courtroom, he doesn't see any of that. He sees the righteousness of Christ instead. What does that do for you? I mean, man, you sit there, right? Doesn't your heart just soar when you think of that? That this has all been done for you through faith alone. That it's not about you getting better and better and better and doing more good and more good and somehow you'll measure up someday. The gospel says that right now, through faith, you measure up. And it's not because of you so that no one can boast. It's all by faith alone in Christ Jesus. Tom Schreiner says, Biblical justification is a future announcement in the present. So God is saying what's true of you one day in his courtroom is true of you now. And we look forward to one day where God announces to the whole world our justification when we stand before him. God's desire for you is to have confidence in judgment. Did you know that? That's his desire. He doesn't want you to be fearful of judgment. He wants you to have confidence. He tells us that. 1 John chapter 4. It says, by his love is perfecting us so we may have confidence in the day of judgment because he is also as we are in the world. Okay, now look at that. Just look at that for a minute. We're supposed to have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. What's that saying? As Jesus is right now before God, that's how you are before him. Do you think Jesus has any fear standing in the courtroom of God? None. He's got full assurance, full boldness to stand before God. And, and, and John is saying, this is the same kind of boldness that you can have in judgment because you have the righteousness of Christ. Mark Dever says, the Reformation exploded because people for the first time had assurance. They could know that when they died, they'd go to heaven and be with God. This is something that they had never had before. It was wrong to assume that you had assurance. To say that anyone could go to heaven when they die, that was wrong to say. It was how prideful is that? No one can do that. But here was this gospel truth that yes, it is possible to know in this life where you stand before God. So works are not a part of salvation, but what role do they play in the lives of believers today? Let's look at verse 10 again of Ephesians. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Should believers be people who do good works? 
do this. Yes. Yes, they should be. But here's a helpful phrase for you to think about. Works are not the root of salvation, but the fruit of salvation. So works should be present in your life as a believer, not for salvation, but evidence that you have been saved. They don't contribute to it, but it's evidence that your heart really has been changed is that you have a desire to follow God and to do good works in this world. In fact, it says that this God has prepared you to do this. This is what you were made for, to do good works for him in this life. That's why Titus tells us, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. So grace of God appeared, bringing salvation, but the grace of God also trains us. Now, what does that mean? It trains us to renounce ungodliness. That means that the same grace that saves us motivates us for holy living, And how does it do that? If you are saved by grace through faith alone, that means the works that you're doing aren't so that God will accept you, but because he already has accepted you. That's the motivation for doing these things. And the more that you reflect on that, the more that you think upon those things, the more that you will start to want to live and to do what's right for God. See, the imperatives, the commands of Scripture are there and they're meant to be followed, but they're made to be followed in light of what God has already done. So we base what we do in that God has already fully accepted us and causes us now as a response to his grace to keep living by his grace and to keep growing in him. Now, for me personally, I remember when, my, when I was set free when I discovered this. Because I, I grew up not believed, I believed that salvation was through grace and faith. But then I thought that now it was up to me for God to accept me more. Right? To, to look at me. And to, to have joy when he sees me. I, I thought growing up and into my 20s that God saved me, but he didn't like me very much. Right? And when I get to heaven, he'd be like, okay, yeah, come on in here, whatever. All right, back there. And I would read my Bible thinking, okay, now I'm, I'm filling up. I'm getting more and more grace. Uh, I'm serving in church. I'm going on a missions trip. Uh, I'm being kind to people. I'm bouncing my eyes at the gym. Um, I'm doing all these things that I think that God now at the end of the day is going to think, wow, Brad, great job today. But then the next day I'd be worse and the whole thing would be drained. It'd be like I was starting over again. We need to be reminded and remind yourself that justification is not a process. You are not more justified on your greatest day and you are not less justified on your worst day. You're fully justified in Christ through faith alone. That's why Paul says the grace of God overflowed for me. The whole thing was full. When you place your faith in Christ, that whole bucket filled and it's still overflowing with grace. There's nothing more that you can do. You know, I I like visual reminders. And I was thinking about this the other day. You know those giant dumping buckets like you see at Cascade Falls, things like that? How lame would those things be if it just let out like one trickle at a time? The whole beauty of it is that the whole thing just dumps and it like knocks you over and it's awesome and everybody's screaming and yelling. It's wonderful. Every time you see one of these, you need to remind yourself that God's grace overflowed for me. 
1 Timothy chapter 1. God's grace overflowed for me. Everything I need for salvation, I've already been given, and it can be received through faith. So if you think you're out there and you're a Christian, you've got it all together, stop. Confess your pride. Acknowledge you need God's grace every day. If you're out there and you're defeated by sin, repent. There's grace for you. Come to Jesus. And so maybe you're out there this morning, though, and it resonated with you the question of how good is good enough. Maybe when I do stand before God, I just hope that one day my good works, my good deeds will outweigh my bad. This is what Romans chapter 3 says about that. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's the answer to your question. Can you ever be good enough? According to the Bible, no, you can't. To sin means to fall short or to miss the mark. We've all missed God's standard of perfection. So none of us can ever be good enough. That's why the next two verses are so glorious, though. It gives hope right after that. Verse 24 says, and are justified, that means made right with God, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That means Christ died, and we receive that as a gift whom we put, he put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So if you're thinking this morning, I'm, I'm going to be good enough, you won't be. You aren't right now. But you can have the full assurance that you are if you trust that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he took your sin upon himself, and he gives you his perfect righteousness, everything that you need to stand before a holy God, and that can all be received by placing your faith or your trust in Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You're so good to us. That you respond to us in grace Salvation has appeared offering, grace has appeared offering salvation to all who would believe. Nobody's left out. There's no prejudice on who gets, who wants the grace of God. It's all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God, I pray that there's some in this room that have never trusted you that they would today that they would stop relying on their good works and only trust Jesus alone for salvation. I pray for the believer here that thinks that um, in order to be accepted, they gotta do good works. God, would they rest in the fact that you created us for good works, but not for salvation, but because we've already been saved, not because of them? And God, maybe we'd be people that produce good works from a heart that is fully given to you. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray.